When you buy Kroger brand products, you feel like you're winning. That's because they offer proven quality at lower than low prices. In fact, we guarantee that you and your family will love how Kroger brand products taste. Or you get your money back. So next time you're shopping for the family, look for delicious Kroger brand products. Because they'll make you all feel like you're winning. Shop now, in-store, or online. Kroger. Fresh for everyone. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow the global story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action, and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Hi, this is Newt. 2020 is going to be one of the most extraordinary election years of our lifetime. I want to invite you to join my inner circle as we discuss each twist and turn in the presidential race in my members-only Inner Circle Club. You'll receive special flash briefings, online events, and members-only audio reports from me and my team. Here is a special offer for my podcast listeners. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. And if you sign up for a one or two year membership, you'll get 10% off your membership price and a VIP fast pass to my live events. Join my inner circle today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast. Use the code podcast at checkout. Sign up today at newtsinnercircle.com slash podcast and use the code podcast. Hurry. This offer expires February 14th. On this episode of Newt's World, we're continuing our new series called Spies Like Us about the men and women who serve our nation in the intelligence service. Each episode features the true story of a career intelligence officer and all the ups, downs, and shocking moments they endured along the way. On this episode, I'll introduce you to Raleigh Flynn. Ms. Flynn is a 30-year veteran of the Central Intelligence Agency, where she held senior executive positions, including Director of the CIA's Leadership Academy, Associate Deputy Director of the National Counterterrorism Center, Executive Director of the CIA Counterterrorism Center, and Director of the Office of Foreign Intelligence Relationships. She also has extensive overseas experience, including as Chief of Station 
in major posts in Southeast Asia and Latin America and as a clandestine operations officer in Africa and Southeast Asia. What led you to decide you wanted to work for the CIA? Well, it was sort of an accident. I came from a family that served. My dad was Army Air Corps during World War II and career forest service officer. Shortly after college, I went to work in book publishing. I was an editor at Simon & Schuster. And I'd always wanted to see the world. I grew up in California, small towns mostly. And I'd never been east of Reno when I decided as really probably the only person in history in an act of rebellion went to Wellesley College rather than Berkeley. So I'd always wanted to see the world, but I was working in New York City at Simon & Schuster, a job I liked, when I saw an ad on the op-ed page of the Sunday New York Times, and it said, do you like adventure? Would you like to see the world? Would you like to serve your country? And I thought, well, yeah, that all sounds really good. I sent away a cover letter and a resume to the name and P.O. box provided. And, of course, I later learned that the name on the ad was not a true name of any real person. But I really didn't know what I was getting into till I signed on the dotted line and signed a secrecy agreement. But I knew I was going to be undercover operating overseas. And that all intrigued me, and I said, well, I'll give this five years and see what this is, and I ended up staying 30. It was an extraordinarily rewarding career. You can get up every day. You may not like every day of your job, but you always feel pretty good about saying, I work to support the security of the American people. So when you first began going overseas, now I assume you've been through a training program. Yes, a rather extensive one. That included how to do trade craft effectively, which is essentially to recruit and what we would call clandestinely handle our sources, or in the CIA we call them agents or assets, in such a way that you're not going to get caught because consequences for these folks who cooperate with the U.S. government or the CIA can be pretty dire, anything from arrest and imprisonment to execution. From your perspective, when you first went overseas, were you covered or were you uncovered in terms of your diplomatic status? Oh, I was very much undercover. In fact, very few people knew my actual employer. I told my father because I thought he would understand. I told a couple of my siblings. I never told my mother. My mother never knew where I worked. Really? Yes, really. Wasn't she kind of mystified by the places you were traveling to? Not not really. She was a lovely woman, but she was not particularly worldly. I don't think she would have understood what the CIA was, and she might have worried unnecessarily. And so I didn't tell her. So you have done your initial training. You go overseas. And is your first phase, are you actually out trying to recruit people, or are you trying to run agents that have already been recruited? Both. To succeed in the CIA, recruitment is the coin of the realm. One of the worst things they can say about a case officer is can't recruit. And most can't recruit. Recruiting is hard. It's akin to sales. It's being able to ask, do the big ask, but also persuade someone 
to commit espionage, to do something that can potentially cause them harm if found out. Now, we're very professional about how we handle our sources, and we certainly do everything humanly imaginable to protect them, but there's always a risk. I was very much expected to recruit. In fact, during my first tour, I was in Africa, and my boss was constantly looking at what are we doing to get you a recruitment. You had to get at least a recruitment or two in a first tour as a case officer to be considered a viable case officer for life. Now, that might have been a little different if I were, say, serving in a place like Moscow where recruiting would be much more difficult. But in most of the world, as a first-tour case officer, you're expected to recruit, you're expected to handle sources clandestinely, not getting caught, and you're very much required to write a lot of intelligence reports. And do those come in the form of cables back to Langley? That's exactly right. They do. They're what we would call raw intelligence as opposed to finished intelligence, which are formal analytical pieces, which were probably what you would have seen when you were Speaker of the House. The raw intelligence reports are what come from our sources, and they get put together with other raw reports into more analytical pieces, into what we call multi-source intelligence. Some raw intelligence reports, though, do get shared if there's something particularly of interest or it's a particularly insightful raw intelligence report from the horse's mouth, so to speak, it will get shared very selectively with policymakers. You started during the late phase of the Cold War. That's correct. I came in in the early 80s, part of the Reagan-Casey hiring bump. A lot of us were hired. The first part of my career was in Africa and Southeast Asia during the Cold War. Were your primary competitors in that sense, the Russians and the Cubans, or who were you up against? In Africa, the Russians, the Chinese, the North Koreans. And we considered members of the Warsaw Pact countries legitimate targets for recruitment as well. And then, of course, in Africa, there were Libyans. And we were always very interested in whatever was going on in the region or the particular country we were in. Toward the end of my time in Africa, in the late 80s, I was in southern Africa, so of course, South Africa was a huge intelligence collection requirement. And at that point, we were collecting against the apartheid government. We were collecting against everything. We were interested in what the government was doing. We were also very interested in the ANC, because the ANC, for years, was very close to the Russians, to the Soviets. We were very interested also in what was going on with the various trade unions within South Africa. That was the closest thing to uh, civil society. The trade unions were real powerhouses. And I, I think we can still see the remnants of that with Cyril Ramaphosa as the president of South Africa now, who used to be the head of the mine workers. In these early days, were you operating under your own name or did you actually get a pseudonym and fake passports and all that stuff? <laughs> yes. I was operating in my own name. However, when we do some operations, we do operate an alias, and sometimes we have different kinds of documentation to support those aliases that we're using. So absolutely. 
And particularly if we're dealing with a source of perhaps indeterminate reliability, and you always have to assume at some point a source could be turned, you do your best not to expose any information unnecessarily to that source. So in many cases, my sources did not know my true name. When we come back, Raleigh Flynn tells the story of being undercover in Africa and facing a very dangerous situation. Are there things that this many years later are no longer classified? We could give us a couple examples of crazy things. I remember one of the things that happened to me early in my career in Africa. I'm blonde and blue-eyed, and at the time I was in my 20s, and I was coming back from a source meeting, and I was driving. The source was no longer with me, but I had some documents from that source. And I was driving through a market area. Now, I had the documents. They were very carefully concealed in a way that, as long as there wasn't heavy scrutiny, would not be found. But as I was driving along, not very fast, through a marketplace, all of a sudden, to the right of my car came running a little girl, about five years old, ran into the side of my car, went with a huge thump onto my windshield, passed out, was bleeding from the head, and she was unconscious. I stopped the car. It was quite shaken up and had about a split second to decide what to do. At the time, I think the standing orders, which I wasn't aware of because I was fairly new in country, were to leave the scene. But I didn't know that. And so I had a split second to decide what's the right thing to do here. Do I stop and try to help? Do I drive on? Do I get out of there? Because if a mob takes my car apart, they're going to find these documents and probably figure out who they came from, which is going to cause all kinds of problems for the source of mine. So in that split second, and I and I can't say honestly that I went through all the ethical models of, of decision-making. It was more of a gut reaction. I got out of the car, and fortunately... The crowd, I think, was not as hostile toward me as they might have been. I think they could see I was young. I was very upset. So there were two gentlemen there, two locals, and we put the little girl in my car, and I drove her to the hospital. And fortunately, she turned out to be just bruised up. She was fine. She came, too, by the time we got to the hospital, and then her parents came. I paid the hospital bill, which was about $7. And then a couple days later, on advice of one of the locals, I went and visited her and brought her a little toy and her parents an envelope with $100 in it. But that was the kind of thing that could happen in those parts of the world. Traffic accidents, which shouldn't be a big deal, could all of a sudden spell life or death for the source, certainly. Or if the crowd turned ugly, they could have gone after me very easily. I had another incident in Africa that happened. I had a safe house meeting. We had our ways of using disguise, but this was not a particularly high threat meeting, so I was not in disguise, but I was walking 
and doing a surveillance detection route toward my meeting, which means sort of meandering around and making sure there's nobody following me, when all of a sudden I started to hear a little motorbike behind me and a couple guys on it making cat calls and following me and inviting me to the movies. And <laughs> I must have gone on for about 45 minutes and I couldn't lose them. So I didn't go to the meeting. I, I kept trying to lose them and I finally said, no, I can't go to the meeting. So I aborted. And of course, at the time, I worked for this very gruff chief of station. And the next morning, I went and told him what happened. And he was very concerned about, well, did you go to the meeting? No, I couldn't go to the meeting. I didn't want to drag these two young men with me. And he said, oh, okay. And as I left, I could hear him grumbling under his breath, women case officers. So in the old days, some of the old timers weren't keen to have women working for them in this field. So those are a couple of examples. There was a TV show on FX called The Americans, which apparently was inspired by the FBI actually arresting some deep agents that the Russians had put in years ago. And I think they arrested about 10 people. Did you have much sense on that side of the business of how much we have to be concerned about other people trying to penetrate us? I think we have to be deeply concerned about it. And the Russians are very serious and concerning adversaries. Beyond the Russians, I think there are a lot of different countries, as well as non-state actors who are interested in penetrating us, perceive us as adversaries and threats. So, yes, absolutely. The Russians do do that. They have what they call illegals, deep cover individuals who will live inside a country and look like something they're not. And that's exactly what happened with the folks who were arrested in 2010, who were in New York and the Mid-Atlantic. They were deep cover, posing as Americans. Given the size of the Russian community in New York City, it wouldn't be that hard to pose. I mean, we're a very open society in that sense. Well, and the Chinese historically have recruited within the Chinese diaspora, not only in the United States, but around the world. And so their recruited sources blend in very well here. Now, from the other side, though, we also had, in terms of recruitment, uh, with Aldrich Ames and Robert Hansen, people who were clearly Americans, but who, for their own reasons, decided they wanted to spy for the Russians. Absolutely. That's obviously a concern, counterintelligence. We have you know, CIA and the FBI have had large counterintelligence operations because that's always a potential risk. And when you talk about things that were shocking, I think when we learned that Aldo James was spying for the Russians, I think a lot were shocked. A lot, though, when they thought about it, said, yeah, Aldo James was, he had sort of the typical hallmarks of a spy in that most spies, most of them turn Snowden being an exception, or Chelsea Manning being an exception. Most of them turn in their 40s. It's kind of when the dream ends, when life presents itself. Aldo James had money problems. He had a new wife with expensive tastes. He was a drunk. He had not done all that well in his career. He was a GS-14. 
someone who probably had the intellect to rise higher in the CIA, but for his personal problems and his drinking and, candidly, his laziness, didn't go as far as he might. There's a really good article written by one of my former colleagues who's a psychologist at the CIA, Ursula Wilder, and she looked at why spy. She wrote her article initially after Elder James, but then she updated it recently and added it to leakers. I like the model she uses for looking at why people spy, and they have three things in common. The first is a predisposing personality disorder. You know, there's some narcissism, psychopathy, sociopathy, feelings of grandiosity. And then there's usually a triggering event, and that can be career problems, substance abuse, relationship problems, something like that pushes them over the edge. But then finally, there's opportunity. With Aldrich Ames, he was in the rare position as part of his job. He was expected to meet with the Russians. So he could meet with them and look like he was doing his job. Most people can't do that. But today, one of the most concerning things to me is that there is so much more opportunity, primarily because of technology. When Jonathan Pollard was spying, he brought shopping bags full of paper documents. Now you can bring so much more just on a thumb drive if you're inclined to spy. So I find that very worrisome. In the cases like professionals like Ames and Hansen, clearly the Russians had to also, to some extent, be in the recruiting business. Absolutely, although both were volunteers. Didn't you find in your own career, though, that there were volunteers who would occasionally walk up to you and Say, I I want to be helpful? Absolutely. And in fact, I would say that you never really recruit a Russian. You give them an opportunity to volunteer. You know, be the sort of person who is trustworthy, who they can count on. Particularly if you're talking about someone who's in a country where even being seen with an American is potentially perceived as espionage. They really have to recruit themselves ultimately, and then volunteer. We CIA officers just try to give them opportunities to volunteer. For instance, when I was overseas, I always, on my business card, put my home address because sometimes they don't want to go into the U.S. Embassy, too much security, too much possibility of people seeing them and being seen on cameras. But I always put my home address so they would know where to volunteer if they were so inclined. And did people actually show up at your home address? Once in a blue moon, yes. Not always the ones you want, let me put it that way. (laughs) Yeah, not, not the ones you'd hoped for. Yeah, exactly. Coming up, find out what security issues keep a veteran CIA agent up at night. Given all of your experience, what keeps you up at night? What do you worry about? Well, I worry about a few things. I worry about North Korea. I worry mostly about accidents or miscalculations. We now have enough countries in the world that have a nuclear or WMD capability that 
I do fear accidents. I'm also worried about non-state actors getting their hands on WMD or some mass form of attack. I'm less concerned about the state actors, but again, there's always this possibility of misinterpretation of signals. So that does worry me. But in those cases, your concerns are as much about our potentially misunderstanding or misjudging as the other side. I would hope that we would be more careful than some of our adversaries. Are you concerned about, as you get into more modern technologies and the rise of artificial intelligence, etc., are you concerned about the degree to which we are vulnerable to more and more penetration by systems we may not understand? Absolutely. And I think both in terms of the ability to collect information on us as well as to manipulate the information and to damage our digital systems. We rely on these digital systems for the running of hospitals, of our financial services. I think also the potential threat of manipulation of our election systems is very concerning, not just by the Russians, but by other actors who might want to do that. And I think we saw just the beginning of that in the last election. I mean, what was done seems actually pretty crude, you know, just wholesale dumping of emails. Whereas if there had been more skillful, careful manipulation, they could have really planted much more damaging information. You're going to get to a point where you actually have no way of knowing if something you see on the Internet is real or not. Absolutely. The Pelosi tape, I mean, that was really quite a crude production. But in the hands of someone really skillful, it could have been very difficult to determine whether it was genuine or not. What would you say was the most shocking experience that you can actually talk about even today? The arrest of Aldrich James was absolutely shocking. I had been in the service then at that point 12 years, and nothing like that had ever happened. I think a lot of us were shocked by that. We were a bit naive, I suppose, thinking this couldn't happen to us. The deaths at coast in Afghanistan, the so-called triple agent attack, that was a huge shock to the system when that happened. I had just left. I was the executive director of the Counterterrorism Center, and I was the National Counterterrorism Center at that point. But I knew some of those people, and that was shocking. In that sense, is it always, even though you intellectually know it's a dangerous business, is it always an emotional shock when the danger actually shows up? We plan our operations very carefully, particularly if we're in what we would call denied areas. So we try to anticipate the unanticipated, and then when it happens, I think we are shocked. The things that have shocked me were the deaths of officers doing operations. What was it like in the early days to be a woman professional inside the agency? When I came in, I would say maybe one out of eight case officers was female among the new employees. They we're making, I think, some effort to hire some women. Women are really good at intelligence. They can do some things men can't. Men can do some things they can't. But women just don't raise the same kind of suspicion as men. You can put two women sitting on a park bench 
chatting can sit there all afternoon and nobody will think anything about it. <laughs> but put two men on a park bench and people start wondering, what are they doing there? Why are they there? I think women are very good at intelligence in part because people don't notice them and in part because they're different. I found that quite often I could get meetings with people that my male counterparts couldn't simply because I was a little different. The CIA, I think, is trying very hard to bring in more women and put them into senior places. One of the issues we did have is of the women who came in with me, most of them opted out. And they either opted out by leaving the CIA or they opted out by moving into other career tracks where they weren't involved in overseas clandestine operations. And a lot of that had to do with work-life balance. And I think it's a career where it's not always family-friendly. You know, I would have to go out at night and I couldn't necessarily tell my husband where I was going. And that's not easy on spouses. So... I think women are very good at clandestine operations, but it's not a life that really enhances your work-life balance. On another topic, when I first came to the CIA, it was very much a white male conservative place. And I had a girlfriend who came in with me, and we were very good friends. And I remember one time, this would have been about 1982, she and I were on an elevator and we were giggling about something. And there was a very conservative gentleman on on the elevator with us. And we rode several floors together and when it came time to get off, he turned back to us and he said, Valley Girls at CIA, I never thought I'd see the day. So we were sort of an anomaly. I think the CIA has learned, though, that the nature of the business, it being a worldwide business, that diversity helps us do our business. We need people who can look like all the nationalities of the world and speak languages. So the CIA is a much, much more diverse place than it used to be. Was your husband aware that you were at the agency before you got married? He was, but I didn't tell him right away when we started dating. And we were dating in Africa, of all places. He was a naval officer, so we had a clearance. But because I was undercover, I just didn't willy-nilly tell anyone I went out on a date with where I worked. So he and I had been dating a while, and it was only when it became pretty clear that we were going to probably get married that I did tell him. And I think he would have liked to have heard sooner. But by then he was committed, right? (laughs) By then he was committed. (laughs) My children, likewise, I have two children. I did not tell them while we were overseas, but when we came back from overseas and they were in middle school, at an age where they could keep a secret and at a point where they could understand what it meant, I told them. And they were both pretty surprised. They thought I had some boring office job. It's slightly less shocking that they wouldn't have noticed. I remember once my daughter, she must have been about in first grade, when the kids put together little books with their family and they draw pictures of themselves and their family. Here's my dad. Here's my mom. She has a boring office job. <laughs> and, you know, And when she doesn't do that, she's a housewife. I saw that and I kind of laughed. That's a great story. When you think about what obviously you valued and found very, very fulfilling, 
both as a profession and as a career. What is it you wish the American people understood about the intelligence community at large and the CIA in particular? I wish they understood we operate under law. Before I came to CIA, I worked at Simon & Schuster Book Publishing. At Book Publishing, I worked with a lot of really smart, really creative people, people I enjoyed. The biggest difference when I came to government, to the CIA, I also worked with creative, very smart people, very dedicated people. The biggest difference was they were ethical. The people I worked with at CIA, huge, huge emphasis is put on integrity. In fact, if you are found to lack integrity, it's a career killer because so much of what you do, you do out on your own when nobody's looking. And if you are, you know, inventing stories or not telling the truth, that's the end of your career. I wish they could understand the the dedication that people in the intelligence community and at the CIA have and how committed they are to the mission, but also with a commitment to doing it in a lawful way. I think when you watch the movies, we all come across as sort of rogue operators. And while there is a certain case officer personality, they would probably call us cowboys, we operate under the law. From your perspective, it sounds to me like if somebody came up to you today who is in their early 20s and said, is this a career worth pursuing, that you really found it very fulfilling? I think I can say without hesitation that joining the CIA was one of the best decisions I made in my life. That's after 30 years of looking back. I won't say that every day of my time at the CIA was a pleasure. I was in some uncomfortable situations. But overall, the trajectory, I think, was positive. I like to feel like I did some service to our country. And it's that bottom line of protecting the American people. You are a real joy to talk to. Well, thank you. Thank you to my guest, Raleigh Flynn. You can read more about the Central Intelligence Agency and Raleigh Flynn's life as a leader in intelligence on our show page at newtsworld.com. Newtsworld is produced by Westwood One. Our executive producer is Debbie Myers, and our producer is Garnsey Sloan. Our editor is Robert Borowski, and our researcher is Rachel Peterson. Our guest booker is Grace Davis. The artwork for the show was created by Steve Penley. The music was composed by Joey Salvia. Special thanks to the team at Gingrich 360 and Westwood One's John Wardock and Robert Mathers. Please email me with your comments at newt at newtsworld.com. If you've been enjoying Newt's World, I hope you'll go to Apple Podcasts and both rate us with five stars and give us a review so others can learn what it's all about. On the next episode of Newt's World, advances in genetic testing are changing the way we approach our personalized health care. On the next episode, we'll walk through the process of genetic counseling, testing, and results, and what they mean for our future. I think a huge potential to start incorporating genomics into that risk calculation to help better identify patients at risk for a lot of different conditions. I'm Newt Gingrich. This is Newt's World. 
the Westwood One Podcast Network. I'm Katia Adler, host of The Global Story. Over the last 25 years, I've covered conflicts in the Middle East, political and economic crises in Europe, drug cartels in Mexico. Now I'm covering the stories behind the news all over the world in conversation with those who break it. Join me Monday to Friday to find out what's happening, why, and what it all means. Follow The Global Story from the BBC wherever you listen to podcasts. Xfinity has free premium networks for everyone this month, no matter what kind of entertainment you love. Addicted to true crime? Catch killer cases and more spine-tingling shows on A&E Crime Central. Crave adventure? Explore Asian action movies on Hayah. Searching for something extreme? Check out skating, snowboarding, and more on Fuel TV Plus, the global home of action sports. And find crowd-pleasing bops on iHeartRadio's Hit Nation playlist. There's new free shows and movies to love every week. Say free this week in your Xfinity voice remote. We are the voice of NASCAR. The green flag is in the air, and we are underway. The great American race. The Motor Racing Network. NASCAR Cup, Xfinity, and Craftsman Truck Series Racing. Live on your hometown radio station and MRN or NASCAR.com. Martinsville, Talladega, the Chicago Street Course. We have the side-by-side action and last lap passes for the win. Photo finishes. Ryan Blaney will win. The voice of NASCAR, the Motor Racing Network. Work. Zumo Play is your destination for endless entertainment. With a diverse lineup of 350-plus live channels, movies, and full TV series, you'll easily find something to watch right away. And the best part? It's all free. Love music? Get lost in the 90s with iHeart 90s. Dance away with hip-hop beats and more on the iHeart Radio music channels. No logins, no signups, no accounts, no hassle. So what are you waiting for? Start streaming at play.xumo.com or download from the app and Google Play stores today. All you can stream with Zumo Play.